As we now turn our attention to Matthew 8, I must confess that this message has taken on a new life into itself and a new measure of, of breadth as we approach it. We will do so, Lord willing, in two weeks and not beyond because this was only going to be one message that I felt I must uh, at least address with some context and background. So let's approach it here as we now continue our study through Matthew chapter 8, beginning at verse 28 through verse 34. When he had come to the other side, to the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come to torment us here before the time? Now a good way off from them, there was a herd of many swine feeding. So the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. And he said to him, them, Go. So when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine, and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. Then those who kept them fled, and they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, give us your spirit to give us a spiritual discernment and understanding and open up the eyes of our mind, but particularly our hearts, that this would be transformational in our lives, in our prayer life, in the way we live, with the awareness of the very short time in which we live, the assignment and the purpose and the battle that is before us, that you have called us to be on the front lines of engagement. And so we ask that you would bless this time, and we pray your spirit would make the specific application and the corporate application to us, your people. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. What we have here is directing our attention to the very next theologically arranged narrative of this that began back at the first part of chapter 8, continues into chapter 9. It is a sequence and these recorded events that are theologically significant. This comes right after the time in which Jesus calms the wind and the the waves and shows his dominion over all of the earthly realm that we can see, even of nature itself, so that it, it asks the question along with these men, what manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And this next part then implies that we are to again ask that question, what kind of man is this? As we think about the very testimony of the spirit world and we hear what the demons say about him and we consider that, we reflect upon it, we need to ask ourselves, what man is this Jesus Christ? This morning I would like to really begin outside the message and for really the the part probably stay outside of the message of this text to give some context. Because in that day, in this passage, when it was written and to whom it was written, the readers knew something about the spirit world. There's an assumption here. But today, when we see the same kind of characteristics or the effects that we see in the Bible or the descriptions of those in the Bible that were demon-possessed, and we see similar types of things today, they are described in terms of mental illness or some other kind of problem or some very smart politician. Um, But here we have characteristics of great defects. And the New Testament speaks of demonic beings over 75 times. And God does not want us to be ignorant on this. New Testament is not silent nor ashamed about these beings that oftentimes men would discount or or 
diminish in importance. So we're going to walk through a little bit of a New Testament theology of these beings of the spirit world. Let's learn a little bit first before we get into the details of the passage, which hopefully next time I will do in two weeks. First of all, the the Bible tells us there's a powerful angelic being that we refer to as Satan. He's also referred to by a title, the devil. And the vast number of spiritual beings, there are a vast number of spiritual beings that are under this leader that we refer to as Satan. In fact, Matthew 25, 41 calls it the devil and his angels. And these angels, including the devil himself, rebelled against God. We don't know exactly when, before the foundation of the world, or right even in the very fall and the temptation of Adam and Eve. But there's a little window in Revelation 12.4 that says that he drew away about a third of the stars of heaven with him. And stars is a, used in a few places to refer to angelic beings. So about a third of all of these spirit beings that were created at the very beginning, and God created them, and God still has dominion and power over them, they fell. And these, secondly, they comprise a kingdom. The ruler, Satan, that we just mentioned, is referred to as Beelzebub. The word Beelzebub, which is ascribed as a name to Satan, which was also likely the, the Philistine god of Ekron by the name of Beelzebub, but most likely the same. It's a term that means literally Lord of Flies or the Lord of Dung. In other words, he is the ruler of filth. Angels are called demons in their fallen state. In fact, the word demon is a Greek term that was used by the Greeks and the Romans, and they refer to them as semi-deities or semi-gods. The scripture uses that term even coming out of that cultural context for these supernatural beings. And in that day, it is well-known phenomena that in the history of religions that the gods of one nation become the devils of their enemies. Now that's kind of an important principle as you see Perhaps, maybe even why these people wanted Jesus to depart from him. That is why the God uh, or the Philistines were very fearful of the God of Israel when God was on their side. Because in a sense, from their perspective, he was their devil. That which stood for the one was against the other. And that's how they often viewed that culturally. Now, what are these fallen angel angelic beings like? Well, first of all, these fallen angels, which we refer to demons, are evil. They are very, very evil. They're even called evil. Luke 8, 2 says they are evil spirits. And Luke 11, 24 calls them unclean spirits. But this word evil and unclean are moral terms. These are very immoral creatures. They sinned against God and they are actually has different levels of sin. Some are actually more evil than others, according to Luke 11.26. Another thing about them is they are structured into a highly structured dominion with hierarchy, with roles and responsibilities. There is a hierarchy in this invisible realm of angelic beings, even by their names and different, uh, there's principalities and powers and dominions and rulers in the darkness. There's even different kinds of angels. There are cherubim and there are seraphim, perhaps maybe many others. We have some visual um, understanding perhaps more in metaphor than really truly physical embodiment, but even in Ezekiel, these fearsome creatures, which the description of them to our human minds and to our understanding should just let us say, that is just 
absolutely unlike anything I would have ever imagined. But these beings are spirits. They are not a part of this physical creation. They are not physical. They don't have bodies like you and I do. But they are not limited by the normal and the physical barriers that we are either. They can pass into physical bodies. They can take up residence in physical bodies. In fact, a great many of them can occupy themselves into very small spaces. There were two men in our narrative this morning. And yet from the request, the demons, plural, were asked to go into a herd of swine. And we know from the other synoptic gospels that that herd of swine was probably about 2,000 pigs. And they went out of two people and inhabited over 2,000 pigs that then ran themselves down and over the hill and into the water and drowned themselves. So there can be even many demons that take up inhabitant in a single person even though they have no physical body. In fact, when Jesus in Luke 8, 30 was asking to a particular demon, he was talking right through the physical person into the demon himself in which he was conversing with. He says, what is your name? And the demon says, legion, because we are many. Now, legion in that day into the Roman army would have comprised a battalion of about 3,000 to 6,000 soldiers. And this was the reference that this demon in that context was using to describe himself. Demons can and they will take up residence and inhabit men and women and even small children. We have several occasions and scriptural data that demons inhabited small children. Matthew 17, there was a demon in a boy. In Matthew 7.25, there was a Gentile and the little daughter was inhabited by a demon. We have several instances where demons were inhabited children. The parents would take their children or beseech Jesus to cast the demon out of their boy, out of their daughter. Well, let's look next at the effects that they have upon humans in which they interact with. These demons, under the ruler of the God of this age and the prince of darkness and the power of the air, Satan, the devil, this Beelzebub, they live on the earth to wreak havoc on humanity. This is what they thrive for here. Remember, it was not their place. It was not their sphere. But when Adam was told to guard the garden, even before the fall, he implied there was danger that would come upon it. And he failed in his responsibility. And when he then fell into sin, he forfeited all of creation and all of the dominion of man over to the spirit realm and over to Satan. And they have been under... Man has been under the dominion of Satan and his angels all the way up into the reign and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And even today, men in their lost condition are energized by that wicked spirit. And that was the tragedy of the Jews when they were looking for a Messiah, a king that would deliver them from the oppression of a national and political oppression of Rome and from their enemies that they had been suffering under for hundreds of years now. Since the time that they were exiled into Babylon, since the time in which then the Greeks came to power and then Rome and now here they were, they were looking for a political Messiah that would deliver them from oppression. And what they failed to see is there was so much of a deeper and more important oppression in the spiritual realm that was working behind the scenes, even yet through the Romans. But what they needed was delivery from the spiritual oppression, which was transcendent beyond the nations. 
And Jesus was the Messiah who would defeat Satan and his demons and the dominion of evil and the filth of this earth. And that's what they missed. Because they failed to see beyond the political realm. They failed to see what really is true. They failed to see what the eye could not behold, but through the eyes of faith and the word of God has instructed. And I'm afraid we too often, this day, as evangelical Christians, place way too much faith upon the embodiment and not behind the spirit realm that governs the embodiment. Another thing that way that they can affect humanity is they can inhabit individuals. And once they inhabit an individual, the scripture uses the terminology that such a person is demonized, possessed. In other words, that word demonized or possessed means he is utterly under the control of that spirit or spirits. And that's why and what explains some of the activities and the habits of some people. These immoral demons began to degrade the individuals that they inhabit. In some cases, they reduce a man to nudity. It's interesting to observe that the stripping of a person's clothes seems to be somewhat characteristic of demonic activity. This is exactly what several demons did to several people that were possessed or oppressed in the New Testament. This is what they did to our Lord upon the cross. And while he wasn't possessed by the demons, those who stripped him were under demonic influence. So if you begin to learn the characteristics of demons in the world that governs us, you'll see a little more clearly why some of those biblical precepts for Christians in the Bible, like modesty, for instance, are things that we need to take attention to because they are antithetical to some of the characteristics of what demons desire to do. In some cases, demons reduce people to filth. The ones in our narrative here are two demon-possessed men who lived in the tombs. They lived among the dead. They identified themselves with the dead or dying things. On one occasion, we read of a demon-possessed, a demon-possessed man that caused a man to slash himself which is an identity with even pagan deities. You remember on Mount Carmel where they slashed themselves, calling out to their pagan gods to come. And so marking yourselves and slashing yourselves, this is characteristic of demonic activity found in pagan religions because those are the embodiment of these doctrines. We read in Matthew 17 of demons rolling a boy in fire and then in the water and seized him with epileptic seizures. In Mark 9, he says that the demons have done this since the boy's childhood. So the effects upon people physically are very real. And demon possessions result in people sometimes becoming blind or being blind or dumb or mute and can't speak. So the result of a demon restricting the very physical powers and the faculties of an individual are somewhat well documented in the scripture and yet also in history. And when demons are expelled, it's very common that then the eyes were opened and the tongue was loosed and they could speak where they before could not. There's a pitiful story. Of a woman who was bent over and could not straighten herself up and bent over severely for 18 years in that position because she was demon possessed. And she comes to Jesus and when he heals her, she was able to straighten up. 
We read of demons that would maul a man's son. We see superhuman strength. Even in Acts 19, when there was these itinerant Jewish exorcists who were unbelievers and lost men, who saw Paul casting out demons and thought that they would do so too in the name of Jesus. And seven of these men, the son of Sceva, when they did so, the demon approached them. Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? And the demons jumped on these seven men and beat them to a pulp where they ran out of the house wounded and naked. Superhuman strength. The two men that we read of in our narrative who lived in, among the dead and they bound him with chains and they could not have the chains contain him. He broke them, but not once, but every time they tried to bind these two men, they broke the chains. Superhuman strength. That was coming from a power beyond. So that it says that no man could walk that way. But not only can they possess humans and taking up residence in them and controlling them, even to all of their faculties and to their physical abilities, but they can also influence and affect individuals. While some may not be demon-possessed, they can be demon-oppressed and even influenced by demons. This can happen to believers. This does happen to believers. This has probably happened to you, quite unawares. One of the greatest case studies that we know of in the scripture was Job himself. And that was well documented for us in order to learn wisdom from God and the fear of God, even quite in spite of things that we don't understand that are going on behind the scenes. And when our theology doesn't always match up to our experience, the, the bottom line is that we are to trust God and his wisdom nonetheless. There's a great lesson there. Job was a battleground that God himself chose. Paul said that he wanted to go visit the Thessalonians in Thessalonica, but was hindered by Satan from doing so. And God revealed to him that even his physical malady was a messenger sent from Satan to buffet him. So that in Paul's physical weakness, he would be spiritually strong. Now, another thing that I would draw your attention to is they are often recognized by their effects and characteristics upon people. Now, in our Lord's time, the people recognized when others were demon-possessed. That's an interesting bit of revelation. They knew it. The man who, was, who brought his son to Christ knew that he was demon-possessed, and that was the reason for his muteness. Others brought family members to Jesus and they knew it. Many brought the demon possessed to them so that he would heal them. They knew that they were present in great numbers and they knew the names of the people that they lived in. And that's why I've decided to back out just for a little bit and give us a New Testament theology of something that we often depreciate, but these people had an understanding of in greater capacity. They saw the effects of possession upon their bodies. They lived in fear of those beings. And even today, in third world countries, they acknowledge much more readily than we do the presence of those demonic beings. I have a pastor friend of mine who is older, much more experienced, and who has traveled the world on in, in many different mission fronts in third world countries. And he's seen and experienced this, what I'm suggesting. But he suggested in the modern Western civilization in which we live, with our education and the kind of post-enlightenment society in which we live, that it seems to him that it is not the devil's approach 
to more civilized and more educated cultures to convince them of his existence and that of these demonic beings. In other words, the way of enslaving aggressive and educated societies such as ours is to enslave them to their arrogance and to their own mental denial of the supernatural. It is not that demon possession does not exist in our society, but it is rather mostly unknown of what's going on. They label it something a little more scientific. In fact, there's an illustration that is somewhat shocking. In 2009, there was a Barnapole, and they were from this group of people that they were asking, they were polling professing Christians. Not just everybody in our Western society and in our nation, but Christians in our Western society and in our nation. And of those professing Christians, over 59% of them held that Satan is not a living being, but rather more of a symbol of evil. 59% of professing Christians did not hold that Satan was a living being. Only 26% of professing Christians, according to that poll, believed strongly that Satan was a real being, and only 9% somewhat agreeing to that where 8% just weren't sure. So why do I feel that we need to be compelled to step back for a moment before we get into the details of the text of Matthew 8 to have a little primer on this New Testament theology of what the Bible says is real? Why do I suggest that? Because I don't hear it much in your praying, people of heritage. When I don't hear it in your prayer requests, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It makes me all the more fearful that you are presumptuous. That you don't think you will encounter Satan. That you don't think that demons will oppress you or buffet you. Or keep you from going to Thessalonica. Or that could buffet your body physically. Like they did the Apostle Paul. Somehow you may think you're beyond that or above that. Or that's not in our culture today. But I'm afraid that that is exactly the ploy and the plot of the evil one. As long as he can keep you from thinking that this doesn't pertain to you. You will not take on the full armament and the very battle that you need To be successful and to be victorious. If he can keep you dormant on the side of the battle, he has got the battle won in your life already. But in those civilizations that are not as advanced as ours, He has other ways of enslaving people, even at the very basest of levels. But you have to realize the demons that Jesus was casting out then are the same demons that are oppressing, inhabiting, dwelling, and influencing people today. The same ones. Legion is still running around on the earth. These that gave this, these two men superhuman strength that went into the swine. Oh, the swine died, but the demons did not. These are the ageless creatures that exist from generation to generation to generation. From generation to generation, inhabiting people, wreaking havoc upon the earth, influencing people. All throughout the world's history. And there is no doubt in this. Because the scripture is emphatic. Christians do not wrestle against flesh and blood. This is what we are up against. 
And this is the wake-up call and the battle cry for us to be engaged in the battle at a new level. We are up against an entire world that is possessed and governed and influenced and enslaved by demonic power and demonic deception. That is what he does here. When someone stands against us because we are Christian, it is because there is an invisible world of demons, an entire dominion that is influencing them to do so. You're not battling against that particular person. And if you think you are, and that's how you engage, you're going to lose. 2 Corinthians 4 reminds us that even our gospel is veiled. It is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded those who do not believe. What we battle against is not flesh and blood. It is an entire dominion that operates behind the visible in flesh and blood, through flesh and blood. They embody flesh and blood, but that is not the ones that we battle. Even though they come in different packages, in different forms, in different people. The very nature of the principalities and the realities of these demonic creatures that are behind it. It is a kingdom that has been in operation behind every nation and every people that are, that are not identified with Christ, governing the affairs of this world. In fact, the world system, love not the world, neither the things of the world, that world is a system that the scripture speaks about, a system of governing principles that stands against everything that Christ stands for. And it is governed behind the scenes. If people recognize it or not. And for the most part, they do not. Well, how do we combat this evil? There are reasons God saved you and left you here in this fallen, messed up world under the, which is under the sway of the, the wicked one, which you used to be but are no longer. You've been delivered out of the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of his dear son. And you are left here because, first of all, there are other souls, humanly speaking, that depend upon you and your testimony and your witness to be delivered out of that kingdom of darkness. Secondly, because you are a part of a growing and victorious kingdom here on this earth. This is not something we shrink back from. This is not something we should be ignorant of. This is something we need to be engaged in and head on pressing into it. We are raising up an army, people. An army that already has victory on our side. Because if we use the power of Christ, we are extending His dominion here And what a glorious assignment he has given, albeit difficult and hard and never any relief from that engagement. But Christ has promised the victory. Consider the very fact that the numbers of demons are fixed. They do not procreate. They do not give birth to children. You consider that the world's population in the time that a third of them were running to and fro on this earth and inhabiting how many humans at that time. Well, guess what? Humans have increased and the demons have not. Why is it all the more important for us to be raising up godly children and a lot of them for the armies of Jesus Christ? They are warriors. Our children are the future warriors that are going to push back the enemy and take the ground and we cannot lose them to the culture of this world. We have victory on our side. We have something much more glorious and we need to teach them and cultivate them because it is through them that the scepter of our king's righteousness will be extended. So what is the key to success? What does it take to combat this evil dominion which is stronger than we are, more fortified than we are? And first of all, that is the first thing. 
we must recognize that this enemy is much more powerful than we humans are. That's the whole object lesson of taking the people out of Egypt and then bringing them into a land of promise where they could not refute the fact that there was many glorious treasures in this land, but what they saw were enemies in fortified citadel cities armed with hardened battle warriors, and those were the people they had to go defeat. And God says, don't worry, I'm going before you. I'll fight the battle. Now just trust me in this. In fact, so much so that the very first battle they go to, they have to engage it with trumpets. But he had already shown him himself. He'd already shown that he was on their side. He'd already brought them through the sea. He'd already delivered them out of Egypt. And they were supposed to realize, okay, this is what we're supposed to do. But all they could do is they could see the enemy stronger than we are. And the reason many of them did not go in and inherit the land is because they did not believe the Lord and therefore they disobeyed. That is not true of us. The enemy is stronger than we are. We acknowledge that. But greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And as we trust in the name of the Lord our God, we like Joshua will go with great courage and strength. And we will engage the enemy with a surety that we will win and inherit that promised land. And let me tell you something very important here. If this message somewhat scares you, you have absolutely no choice of a battle that you're in. And if you'd like to just put your head in the sand and think this doesn't exist, that's a sure defeat that your enemy already has you. You cannot shrink back from this battle. It was those who were afraid to engage in the battle that did not inherit the promises. Christians, you must be strong in the power of Christ. And that only comes by faith. And you must engage in this battle head on. You cannot be a coward in this. Revelation 21.8 says, But the cowardly, unbelieving, shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. Five things you must know and must believe. For victory to be assured. And what it takes to combat the attacks of this invisible and powerful malicious evil force of darkness. Is the unity of the body of Christ. With a diversity of gifts. First of all we have to understand. That. We must have Christ as our Lord and Savior. 1 John 4, 4 says that greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. And you have overcome the world because He has overcome it. The second thing you must understand is you must acknowledge that not only Satan and his demons exist, but the very fact is you will encounter them. Don't go sticking your head in the sand and becoming part of a, of a statistic of another Barna poll that is going to be the victory for the enemy. People not only question his existence, but people question if they ever encounter him. Well, will that ever happen to me? I, I don't think it would ever happen to me. Don't you go thinking that for a moment. Watch and pray that you enter not into... Peter, why are you sleeping? Watch and pray. He wields his sword because he's thinking flesh and blood. But when he encounters the real enemy, he flees and denies the Lord thrice. Our enemy has many ways... Some of his ways are deranging people. That's just one of his ways. Deception. Feeding on people's arrogance. Feeding them education in their minds to the extent that they turn away logically. While being very illogical. Paul even writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that Satan can appear as the angel of light. He disguises himself such that he appears to bring light to people. And what that means is that there are people that believe that they're speaking the truth 
And people that believe they are listening to the truth, but in fact they are listening to the doctrines of demons. 1 Timothy 4.1 says, Now the Spirit expressly says, In the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed and to deceiving spirits and the doctrine of demons. This is not something that goes on out there. This is happening from the pulpits. Doctrines of demons. They think it is scriptural truth, but in fact it is demonic doctrine. Paul even speaks in 1 Corinthians 10.20, when people go to worship, if it's not in spirit and truth, they actually worship and fellowship with the demons. We may tend to think of these things as primitive. But let's just take into a culture like ours, very large church buildings with pastors behind pulpits today, with the Word of God open in front of them, seminary trained, can exegete the Greek, can go to the Hebrew, and yet in very sophisticated ways explain away the passages with a different spin. And that mishandling of the Scriptures is supernaturally connived and created so they mislead people in thinking they're hearing the truth in the Bible when in fact it is far from it. And it leads people to hell. And the preachers preaching these doctrines of demons don't even know that they are a tool of the devil. That's how strong the deception is. They are the ones that Paul speaks about, of these evil men that are deceived and being deceived. And the third thing, in order to combat this, not only you must have Christ as your Lord and Savior, secondly, you must acknowledge that not only Satan's armies exist, but you will engage with them. But third, you must, you must be a part of the body of Christ here on this earth. This is probably one of the the doctrines of demons that has been spread so much in our society, in our time, in our culture, to evangelical people, and even particularly to homeschooling families. But you will not win this battle alone. It is not God's intent or His design that you do so. And to be apart from an active, living, integrated member of the body of Christ is certain defeat for your soul. If you continue in that state. In fact, even those who profess Jesus Christ, but who are not in communion and fellowship with the local church are considered already turned over into the kingdom of Satan. And if they persist, they will eternally be defeated. This notion today that you don't have to be a member of a local church is a lie right out of hell. It is a doctrine of demons. Fourth, it takes us living in unity in heart and spirit in this local body to defeat this foe. It takes us with a diversity of gifts, but living in unity in heart and spirit in this local body to defeat this foe. If you are not unified in spirit, it's likely because you're not ministering with your spiritual gift. Those two will go hand in hand. Ephesians 4 takes this unity of the spirit and begins to tell us in the doctrine of the church, this is the way that... This wards off those doctrine of demons. Ephesians 4.14, that we should no longer be children tossed about to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Those are the doctrines of demons. And what is the secret for us not to be tossed to and fro? It is the unity of the body functioning with all the spiritual gifts in that body that creates the power to understand And the power to stand against demonic forces that attack it. This is the same passage 
that tells us, do not give place to the devil in your life. It is through disunity or through negligence in your ministry in the body of Christ that makes you vulnerable and susceptible. And it is through unity, disunity, and schism and division in the body that makes the body susceptible. Go study out Ephesians 4 in the whole context of the book as it brings us right into the application of chapter 6. And you're going to see it is quintessentially important for a church body to maintain its unity with the diversity of all that's going on in the giftedness there. For every member doing its part to grow this kingdom that then empowers the kingdom over against the Satan and the enemies of darkness. If you're going to be divisive and individualistic and you're going to be in the schismatic spirit, you will be defeated and you can bring that body into great vulnerability. That's why one of the greatest sins in the church is division. There should not be any place for that. We are up against something that is much powerful force than we and your little indications and your little um, problems and your little dislikes and your little spiritual disunity in your heart is that which makes this entire body vulnerable unto the attack of the evil one. Do not give place to the devil. What we're up against is maintaining unity here, and that maintenance is not of flesh and blood. But it is against the principalities and the powers and the wicked spirits in heavenly places, and that's why Ephesians 6 tells us to be praying always with this battle and this weapon armor that God has given. That's why Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, the devil is stalking about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That's why James says in 4.7 that we are to resist him because we will face him. And that's why back in our passage in even Ephesians 4 in that context it says even our anger can give place for Satan to get the foot in the door. But fifth, Christians in the church do interact with Satan and his dominion. But when we engage with God's weaponry, we are victorious. Folks, excommunication cases are cases where there is a divisive person with unrepentant sin in the body that is delivered out of that body back into the kingdom of Satan. The church is told to do that. The church is told to interact with this dominion in this way. Paul says he did this with two men. He took Hymenaeus and Alexander and he delivered them over to Satan. This man in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, they took him and delivered him out of the church over into the kingdom of Satan. You think about the implications of that with a church body being the haven and the kingdom against Satan and his enemies. You think about the implications of that when you think you're going to go it alone or you can do your church at your house or your individual thing or not attend church and not be a part of this kingdom. You think about the implications of this severity and this vulnerability and these lies and these deceptions that are so rampant today. And even through our prayer requests, people pray for the safety in our travel, but pray all the more against safety from this evil one who seeks to destroy your family, your marriage, your children, and this church. We have a great thing going here, but because of the grace of Christ. But I'm calling us to a battle cry. Let's lean in. Let's gird on our swords. And let's flash that sword. And let's take the word of God. And let's be praying in the gospel. And let's be all about the business that God has taken us here. Not for our survival. Absolutely not. For the victory of Christ's kingdom. And pushing back the borders of darkness. We've got power. We've got the victory on our side. Let's not be ashamed or afraid, but engage. And if you are a cowardice and you don't want to engage in that spiritual battle, you will be defeated. Conclusion of the matter is this. Jesus is the Lord of the spirit world. And next time we come together, we're going to see how they interacted with him. We're going to see what kind of things they had in common with him. We're going to see what they 
ask of him. And we're going to see that they could do nothing unless they begged him. And they can do nothing with you unless the spirits beg your Lord. And so this man, who is this man? Who even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this man who even the demon and the spirit world interact with him and speak to him? He is our Lord. He is our Savior. And we must trust him far beyond what the eyes can see. And we have victory if we are leaning upon him and his power. Our gracious Father, save us from our ignorance. Save us from our arrogance. Save us from our negligence. Save us from engaging in the wrong kind of battle with the wrong people and the wrong institutions in the wrong manner. Lord, we pray that you would help us all the more to be empowered in the strength and the power of thy might. And praying against the very evil forces that control and direct the course of this world. But knowing that you have come and set up your kingdom here. And your kingdom is growing and it continues to grow. We claim that victory in Christ and shrink not back from the battle which wages against us. Yes, the enemy is stronger than we are, but not in Christ. And so we claim his victorious name. And we look to him as the author and the finisher of our faith, knowing he claims the victory and empowers us with the Spirit to go and make disciples of the nations. And so, Lord, we pray that the gospel would be powerful to us and powerful to those around us that we come in contact with. May we not be ashamed. May we not be defeated. Lord, we pray you would exalt yourself and glorify your name in our very ministry here by keeping us unified in the faith where every member is working with a spiritual gift, integrating into the body to fulfill the ministry that you have given to them. Because together we will be victorious. And so, Lord, we ask that you would make these applications very specific to each of us and to all of us and to us as a whole. The glory of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.